0: Most, if not everything, we've ever heard about forgiveness, it just doesn't gel with the biblical definition of it. Most of what we think forgiveness is, is built around cliché. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave Peter and the rest of his disciples a lecture on forgiveness. What people fail to notice is that right before that lecture came a lecture on reconciliation. And when you do a comparison between those two lectures you will discover that forgiveness and reconciliation are totally different concepts they are not the same thing and forgiveness is not ignoring transgressions or allowing transgressions to continue that's not forgiveness so with all that in mind let's continue to verse 21 it says then peter came up to him and said lord How often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Now folks, let's stop right there. What is Peter really asking Jesus? He's not asking him, how many times do I have to continue to tolerate transgressions? Because Jesus just went through that. And Peter's also not asking him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I be reconciled with him? because Jesus just went through the conditions for reconciliation and how that works. So what is Peter asking him? Folks, were reading from the book of Matthew, the Jewish gospel. To a Jew, how was a transgression against God, or anyone for that matter, forgiven? Forgiveness was not about moving past some hurt or seeking reconciliation. Forgiveness was about offering or receiving a transaction that made up for a debt that had been accrued because of transgressions. Some form of compensation was exchanged to pay for a debt that was accrued by whatever transgression it was that was committed. And all of this was in the Old Testament. So with Peter's question, we're no longer talking about reconciliation, repentance, or conviction of sin. We are now talking about payment. It's all defined in the Torah, the law of Moses. There are all these different definitions for how a sin should be paid for. Whenever people made transgressions against God, repentance wasn't so much the issue. What was the issue was how it was paid for. Nobody ever went to the temple in Jerusalem and said, God, I repent of my sins. And God said, okay, you had to bring two turtle doves or a scapegoat or a sacrificial lamb. Payment had to be made. But there were also ceremonial provisions laid out in the law to pay for moral debts that were made between Jews. Up until this point in the conversation, Jesus was dealing with conduct. He was talking about how to deal with fellow brothers in Christ who have transgressed against us. He's been talking about how to convict them of their transgressions and how to be reconciled if at all possible. But Jesus has not addressed what to do about the debt. So Peter can't help himself but ask the question. How often may my brother sin against me that I should forgive the debt? The religious leaders had a provision for three times, and that was considered merciful. And Peter, remembering the completeness of the number seven, probably thought he could impress his master. But Jesus said, No, you're not even close. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Not seven times, but seventy times seven times. Now, the scriptures don't tell us this, but I get the impression that when he said that, Peter's mouth probably dropped to the floor. You've got to be kidding me. The temple's going to be a bloodbath. There's only so many sacrificial lambs and turtle doves and scapegoats that we can bring in here. I mean, come on. Seriously, seventy times seven times? That's 490 sacrifices, and that's just for transgressions that are made against me by one brother. I've got more than one brother, and that's just me. Do you mean to tell me that everybody in Israel is supposed to forgive their brother of their transgressions 490 times? Where are we going to get enough blood to pay for all that? Way back during the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, one of the things he said that we should pray for is, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The word as in that sentence in the Greek is the word "hose" H-O-C-E, which means in like manner, in the same way, just as. Father, forgive us our debts, pay for our debts, transfer the balance of our debts in the same manner, in the same way, the same way we transfer the balance of our debtors. How did the Father forgive us of our debts, folks? Did he look the other way? Did he wait for an apology before forgiving? Did he wait for an I'm sorry so he could say, that's okay, I understand. Did he accept our excuses? What did he do? It's Christianity 101. (laughs) He transferred our sin debt over to his son to pay it in full at the cross. Our debts were not dismissed. They were not excused. They were not overlooked. They were paid for. The blood of Jesus Christ is what makes it possible for the father to forgive you and me all of our debts made against him. That's Christianity 101, but what most Christians don't know, because of our lacking education in our Jewish heritage, the Old Testament, is that the blood of Jesus Christ is also meant to be used to pay for transgressions and sins that we make against each other. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's why he's telling Peter. How many times can you forgive? Not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Peter knew he was talking about blood. Where's the blood coming from? And how does that really work? I mean, one can mention this in theory. They can say it out loud, put it on paper. But how does that really pay me back? How do I get recompensed for the debt that was made against me? I mean, obviously it was enough to recompense the father of the debts that we accrued against him. It satisfied a need that he had for justice, for compensation. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it because look at what it cost. So if the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to satisfy a pain, a debt, a hurt that we've committed against the father, then it ought to be enough to satisfy us. But how? How does the blood of Jesus Christ satisfy all debts? That are made against me. Now don't fall into the trap of thinking. Well Josh the blood is symbolic. No it's not. The sacrifices up until the cross. Were symbolic. The blood of Jesus Christ. Is literal payment. We've all heard these cliches. There's power in the blood. There's healing in the blood. Are those cliches? Or do they really mean something? Think about all human history and just how low the human race has gone to personally offend the Father. And then, think about the justice and the righteousness that God the Father demands. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfies every bit of that. Jesus bore and felt all of his Father's wrath. And before dying said, paid in full, the debts were paid. If it's good enough for God the Father, then it ought to be good enough for us. But how? What about the debts that have been accrued against me? What about my hurts? What about my pain? What about my wrath? Well, you're a Christian. You're supposed to let all that go. Really? How? And folks, the answer to that question, Satan has kept hidden from us for a very long time. Most of the time when Christians are being taught about forgiveness, one of the key things that they're told is that since the Father can forgive you of all of your sins, then you ought to be able to forgive your fellow brother of their sins. And that's as far as it goes. They never bother to address how. Well, God was able to forgive you. Yeah, God's able to do a lot of things that I can't do. Just because he can do it doesn't mean I can do it. Unless. Unless the way he did it was offered to us so that we could do it too. The channel through which God was able to forgive us is the same channel that he wants us to use to forgive each other. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all debts. But what exactly does that mean? Folks, you're going to hear me be extremely repetitive in portions of this session because it is very difficult to explain what this means without falling into the trap of using words that Satan has redefined to mean something else. So while I may sound repetitive, please bear with me. I'm trying to make a point. And each time I repeat something, I'm going to try to illuminate it with just a little different light each time so that before the entire session is over with, you'll get what this really means. Because, folks, I've been studying the Bible like a bookworm for the past 17 years, and I didn't get this until this year. God's definition of forgiveness requires the blood of Jesus Christ to make it work. But the world's definition of forgiveness removes the blood of Jesus Christ and puts the power of forgiveness itself in the hands of the one doing the forgiving. That's why we don't know how to forgive. The power does not exist in us to forgive anybody of anything. Now here's what we do know. We do have somewhat of an idea of what the results of forgiveness are. Being freed from hurts, being healed, no longer holding the other person accountable. We've heard all of those things, but those are not the actions of forgiveness itself. Those are actions that you are able to do after you've forgiven them. And that's why we think forgiveness is so difficult, folks, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to find the blood to forgive a debt from within ourselves. We're trying to use our own blood, and that's why we can't do it. So what we try to do is we try to overlook a debt, and we call that forgiveness. But the debt is still there. Even our English dictionaries cannot define forgiveness without falling into the trap of just merely listing the results of forgiveness. Check this out. Funk and Wagnall's Encyclopedic Dictionary says that to forgive means to grant pardon for or remission of something. Well, that sounds all right until you realize they just replaced the word forgive with the word pardon. What does it mean to pardon? To forgive. Hey, guys, that's not really helping me out here. Funken-Wagnall's second definition says to forgive means to cease to blame or feel resentment against someone. Well, that sounds good too, but it's not complete. You might cease to blame or feel resentment against someone because they gave you an acceptable explanation for what they did. In that case, no one's been forgiven of anything. They've given you an acceptable explanation and absolved themselves of the crime in your eyes. So that's not forgiving them. That's changing your mind about the whole thing. Funk and Wagnall's third definition says to forgive means to remit as a debt. Now they're getting closer, but they still aren't going all the way. How can anyone remit a debt? We're talking about mathematics. You can't change the value of numbers. You can overlook a debt and pretend it's not there, but is that really forgiving a debt? No, it's not. It's ignoring a debt. Different thing. Forgiving a debt would make up for it. Ignoring a debt leaves it there. So who pays for it? Do you pay for it or does somebody else pay for it? Somebody's got to pay for it. So much for Funk and Wagnalls. What about Scott and Forceman's advanced dictionary? It says to forgive means to give up the wish to punish. Well, that's getting a little closer too, and yet not really. Did God give up the wish to punish us? Only after he punished his son as a substitute. So the father didn't give up the wish to punish. He merely supplied for himself a substitute to take the punishment for us. See, these definitions hit around the target, but they don't quite get it on the nose. Scott Enforcement's second definition says to forgive means to no longer have hard feelings toward the one being forgiven. Now, folks, that's the worst one I've seen yet. And yet, that's what most people think forgiveness is. That's what a lot of Christians think forgiveness is. It's no longer having hard feelings toward the one being forgiven. But forgiveness isn't a feeling we have, folks. Our feelings are the result of forgiveness, not forgiveness itself. Our feelings come after the forgiveness, not before. Scott enforcement even goes so far to suggest that to forgive a wrong is the same thing as excusing a wrong. Now, I couldn't believe that. It says to see the word excuse for a synonym study. Is forgiveness being excused? If you were to ask Jesus about that while a crown of thorns were bashed into his skull and he hung nailed to a wooden cross, would he tell you that the Father excused our sins? I don't think so. The Father didn't excuse anything. Jesus felt the full weight of not only our sin, but God's wrath against it. Nothing was excused. Jesus paid it all. Scott Enforcement's third definition says to forgive means to give up all claim to a debt, no longer demanding payment for it. That sounds like the best definition yet, and yet it's not. It's the worst. Can you say that you've given up all claim to a debt if somebody else came up and paid it all for you? I owe you $100. A friend of mine goes up to you and says, here's Josh's $100. Did you give up all claim to that debt or did you accept somebody else's payment for it? See, folks, forgiveness is about getting a debt paid off. And the reason why is because that's what a transgression is. It's a debt that's been accrued. And the reason why that is, folks, is because all of us are bank accounts. All of us, from the moment we're old enough to even be aware of ourselves, all of us are giving and receiving who we are to each other. It's just like a bank account. We're constantly transferring balances. Our mind, our heart, gives who we are to other people, and the mind and the heart of other people give who they are back to us. Every human being on earth, every one of us, we're all bank accounts walking around, making mental and emotional deposits towards other accounts. And in healthy, godly relationships, everybody is freely giving of themselves to others. Everybody is freely receiving what's being given. But since we live in a fallen world, it doesn't always work that way. And whenever someone wrongs you, or sins against you, or trespasses against you, what they are doing is making an illegal withdrawal from your account because you didn't freely give, they took. A debt has been accrued. All of us are bank accounts, and their account has stolen assets from your account that you are either unwilling or unable to release. But they got it anyway. It's a bank robbery. Whether they intend it to be or not, that's what it is. So what has taken place is now there is a debt in your account that you have to deal with. Somebody might say, well, why don't you just get over it or let it go or forget all about it? The reason why you can't is because it's a debt. You don't forget debts. A debt is a hole. It's a negative number. Something has to be put in place of it to fill it up. Have you ever known of a bank to just get over a hot check? Depending on the size of that check depends on how they reacted. If an account has been overdrawn, they might be very nice about it and polite, but they certainly don't get over it. They don't just forget it and move past it. Action has to be taken to remedy the situation and to make up for the debt. It doesn't make any difference who the debt holder may be, A debt will not be made to go away just by ignoring it, and you can't force it to go away. You can't bury it. There's only two things that can be done with a debt. You can either pay it off, or you can transfer the debt to another account that has the assets available to pay it off. Somebody who's willing to do that. That's the only way you can take care of a debt. Here's another way of looking at it. Suppose you've got a smooth, green backyard lawn. You've got it perfectly manicured. You've put a lot of work into that backyard. But say somebody comes in there with a bulldozer, somebody you didn't authorize to be back there, and scrapes up a big hole and drives off with the dirt. Somebody says, well, why don't you just get over it? Why don't you just let it go? Why can't you get past this? It's because there's a hole in the backyard. I can't get over it until it's filled in. So where am I going to get the dirt? Where am I going to get the dirt to fill it in? Well, my first instinct is to get my dirt back. The person who got that dirt out of my backyard, he owes me dirt. And I'm going to get my dirt back. Well, if you can have a civilized conversation with the person who took the dirt to begin with, that might happen. Because let's say he made a mistake. Maybe he thought you were somebody else. Somebody gave him a phone call and said, I need you to get some dirt out of my backyard, and he chose your backyard by mistake. Doesn't change the fact that there's a hole in my backyard. Or let's say it was just malicious, just a pure act of evil revenge because of something I said or did years ago, and he cooked up this story about making a simple mistake when actually it was all about revenge. Notice it doesn't really make any difference what the reason is. There's still a hole in my backyard. Now, if I can't get the dirt back, let's say he spilled it all over the road and he can't get it back. And he doesn't have any intentions of making restitutions. He's not going to get me new dirt. I don't have the means to get it from his backyard. Then I start to look out towards the hole in the backyard and I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do with this hole. And I start going through various options trying to figure out what can I do. And one of the things that I might start doing is changing or altering the rest of my yard to somehow compensate for the vacuum, for the emptiness that's in that hole. I might go out in the backyard with my shovel, start digging up fresh dirt, slinging it into the hole. But the more I do this, the more I'm realizing I'm just making things worse. I'm just making new holes in the backyard that I don't want. And folks, people do that all the time when it comes to emotional debts, emotional transgressions. The sin against them has created such a debt that they start recreating themselves, changing who they are inside and out, to find a way to live with this massive transgression that's been committed against them. Now, depending on the transgression, sometimes the change is subtle. They just might have a change of attitude. They might build an emotional callus over certain scenarios. They might rearrange their thinking concerning certain groups of folks. But if it's a very serious debt, if it's a very serious transgression, folks, depending on what's taken place, they might change the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they think, the way they vote, the food they eat, the music they listen to, even the people they associate with and the places they go to entertain themselves. They change everything. Now, there's nothing wrong with a change. Sometimes people just get bored with themselves and they want to reinvent themselves. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a reflex. One of the hidden truths about homosexuality that nobody will bring up because it's politically incorrect is that most homosexuals, once they go into therapy and they actually start talking about their childhood, every last one of them documented report being molested or raped. When they were very young. Some of them as young as three or four years old. If you're a five-year-old boy. Or a five-year-old girl. How do you mentally process. Your mother or your daddy. Coming into the room in the middle of the night. And raping you. How do you deal with that? How do you get over something like that? You don't. You can't. Because the problem isn't who you are. The problem is a debt that has been accrued against you. Rearranging the backyard is not the answer because the backyard's not the problem. It's the hole. Once you realize you don't have enough dirt in your backyard to make up for the hole that's there, then what do you do? Naturally, the next step is to try to figure out how to get dirt from somebody else's yard. I don't have the dirt in my yard to make up for this hole that's in it, so I'm going to get dirt from my neighbor's yard. Whether they can afford it or not, I'm getting it anyway. And folks, this is where you get people who are abusive towards those they love the most. They've got unresolved hurts deep inside of them, and it constantly shows up in how they treat other people. They're impatient. They're self-absorbed. They're self-seeking. Because the bigger the debt that's been accrued against them, then the less they have in their own account to give out to others. They have to defend what little assets they have left. They can't afford to lose any more. So they become mean, they become abusive, they demand a certain amount of attention from others because mentally, psychologically, and emotionally, deep inside, they are dealing with injustice every single day. They may not even know that's what they're doing, but they're doing it with every conversation with every person they know. They are responding to the injustice that's been waged against them. Now, this isn't universally true of all cases. Sometimes people behave this way just because they're buttholes. There is that possibility. But most of the time, it's because they're dealing with some unresolved hurt that was so devastating that they don't have the assets to deal with it. Another approach to getting dirt from somebody else's backyard that isn't quite as hostile is going on a search for someone out there somewhere who might be willing to freely give them the dirt they need to patch up the hole in their backyard. And unlike the one who reinvents himself or lashes out at everyone, this third person openly acknowledges the debt that's been accrued against them. Repeatedly. Continuously. So that everyone knows about it. And the reason why, folks, is because they're needy. They know they don't have it within themselves to fix what's wrong. They're continually needy. Somebody has to help. Somebody needs to fix them. So they're constantly advertising their problem to the world, hoping somebody, somewhere, can fix the problem. And then what happens is people come along who is suffering the same wrong that they are, but eventually nothing's changed. In the long run, the most you can do for each other is provide sympathy, which feels really good at first. It feels so good you might think you're healing, but receiving sympathy for your pain is not being healed. Now, somebody might say, well, Josh, that's not true. They can help each other fill in that debt and repair the damage that's been done to the backyards. If you can't repair the damage in your own backyard, you cannot help your neighbor's backyard. Which leads me to another approach many people take when they're a victim of some horrible transgression. What they do is they look at their account, knowing they don't have the funds to make up for that debt. They take what funds they have left And make an investment towards someone out there who is hurting worse than they are. Hoping they will reap a return for their investment. And this is how you wind up with stressed out relationships between people. Because they saw some poor soul out there that was worse off than themselves. And they saw all the potential. They thought that person's just like me. And what they're trying to do is fix themselves by fixing somebody else. And they hope somehow the gratitude from the person who gets fixed will develop into a relationship that's fruitful enough that will fix them. And it's a bottomless pit. It's a black hole. And it becomes a performance-based relationship. Which isn't good. You can't heal them of their unresolved hurts, and you trying to heal your own hurts by healing somebody else's doesn't do anything but hurt both of you. Because whether you mean to or not, there's all this pressure of expectation. And even though you started off merciful and selfless and giving and nurturing, once you realize that the debt remains in your account and the hole is still in your backyard, then you become like the other case of the person who's demanding, impatient, self-absorbed, self-seeking. Because the time you spent investing what little you had left into this other person, you've now run dry. And the return you were hoping for just isn't there. And that's not fair to the other person. So if none of that works, folks, then what does work? What fills in the hole? What replaces the dirt? What pays off the debt? The only thing that will work is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray and say, Father, forgive us of our debts in the same way that we forgive our debtors. It's the only way, folks. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, there will always be a hole in your backyard. There will always be a debt that needs to be paid off. But Josh, I'm saved. I've got the blood of Jesus Christ. I thought all of that was paid for. It is. We're not talking about your transgressions made against the Father. We're talking about transgressions that other people have made against you. Your salvation is about the blood of Jesus Christ covering your sins made against the Father. Forgiveness is about getting Jesus' blood to cover sins made against you. And don't forget, that's what forgiveness is. It's taking care of the debt. It's not getting over the problem. It's not healing beyond it. It's not growing from it. It's none of those things. How were your trespasses against God the Father forgiven? They were forgiven at the cross. Forgiveness is getting rid of a debt. That goes against everything we've been taught about forgiveness from this world. We all think forgiveness is a feeling. It's saying that's okay when somebody tells us they're sorry. No. It's dealing with a debt. And only the debt. So the question becomes, if the blood of Jesus Christ pays for the debt that I accrued against the Father, how do I get the blood of Jesus Christ to pay for debts that have been made against me? Now, you might be thinking, Josh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound moral. I feel guilty enough about having my own sins up on the cross without putting somebody else's sins on there that were made against me. That can't be right. Yes, it is, folks. Jesus told you to do it. That's the only way the debt will ever get paid. You either hold the debt yourself for the rest of your life or you put it on the cross. And just as the Father received satisfaction from the justice and compensation provided by the blood of Christ. We will receive that same satisfaction. Now, if you don't believe me, you need to read Isaiah 53. That was a prophecy of Jesus' death on the cross foretold 700 years before it happened. And the point of that prophecy was that the Lord God the Father was pleased to have that happen because of what it accomplished. If we're to forgive each other the same way God forgave us, then we also will be pleased and receive satisfaction when we place transgressions made against us under the cross. The question is, how do we do that? How do we get that on the cross so we can see what that feels like? You get it up there in the same way and in the same manner that you transferred your debts made against the Father under the cross. You did it with a prayer. You asked him to. When you became aware of the massive debt that you had accrued against God the Father, you also became aware of the need for that debt to be paid. And when God the Father showed to you that you could not pay off the debt yourself, he also showed you the account to which you could transfer your balance so that he would be satisfied. That's how you got saved. But we are also meant to be made satisfied when we apply that blood unto the sins that others make against us. We get healed of all transgressions made against us in the same way that we got saved from our transgressions against the Father. It's the same cross. It's the same blood. It's the same Father. It's the same kind of humility that we approach Him in prayer. That's how we get sins and transgressions made against us dealt with. Now, folks, this concept is so foreign to us that it's real easy to miss what I'm trying to communicate to you. I'm trying to point out that when the human race sinned against God, what we fail to notice is how much it hurt him. Whenever we talk about our sin against God, we always look at it from the perspective of God being the judge, who is righteously dictating judgment against all sin, and that sin must be dealt with and paid for through a judgment of death. What most of us don't stop to consider is how much God was emotionally hurt. We don't ever stop to consider what it must be like to be him, to be on the receiving end emotionally, of all our transgressions against him. Folks, that is what a debt really is. It's about the emotional damage that is done because of a transgression. God may be perfect in his righteousness, but he is not a robot. He does feel. He loves. God can be grieved. Now, with secular thinking, we often hear that forgiveness is getting over a hurt. Well, how did God get over our sins against him. He did not begin to get over it until after his son shed blood on the cross on our behalf. Now, folks, our wisdom is not infinite enough to conceive why that works, but it does. God, the father was emotionally satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is why he offers that same blood to us, not just to heal us of our sins, but to apply on the sins made against us. That blood offers to us the same emotional healing and satisfaction that God himself received when applying the blood of Jesus Christ to us. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, Father, forgive us of our debts in the same way that we forgive our debtors. What I'm trying so hard to manage to put in this podcast is to express to you how much healing there is in the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiving our debtors is all about receiving healing for the debts that have been accrued against us. That's all forgiving is. It's got nothing to do with anything else but that. The hole that I have inside of me. How do I get that hole filled? How do I get justice? How do I get paid back? We bring the debt to God the Father. You go to him privately in prayer. This isn't to be seen by anybody else. This is between you and God. You explain to him the transgression that has been committed against you. And you take as much time as you need to explain it. You might say, well, Josh, why are we going through all of this? Doesn't God know everything? Doesn't he see all and know all? Of course he does. That's not why you're doing this. The purpose is to apply the blood of Jesus Christ on something in which it presently is not applied. That's why there's a debt. You explain to him the transgression that has been committed against you, and you take as much time as you need. You go over every graphic detail. You tell him how much it hurt, how much it cost, what it did, the damages, the repercussions. And then when you've finished explaining to God Every detail of that debt. You then tell God that you give that debt to him to place upon the cross. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you forgive the person who accrued the debt against you. Now, don't forget, folks, before you cringe and pull back at what I just said, Satan has redefined what the word forgive means so that you will not use that word You forgiving them of their debt before God in prayer does not release the one who transgressed against you from their debt. It merely releases you from being the debt holder. All forgiveness does is transfer the debt to a new bank so that they now become the collectors of that debt and you don't have to be. To forgive is not an act of mercy. It's an act of wisdom. You're getting paid back for the debt that was accrued against you by another bank who is now accepting responsibility for collecting that debt on their terms, in their timing, and you don't have to mess with it anymore. Okay, so Josh, do I get paid back when God collects that debt? No, you don't have to wait for that. You get paid back immediately. The blood of Jesus Christ pays you back emotionally, mentally. And now the original debtor is his problem, not yours. And folks, that's how banks deal with outstanding debts all the time. They don't see it as an act of mercy or an act of weakness. They do it because they realize it's a smart way to get paid back. When you accrue a debt with a bank somewhere and refuse to pay that debt off, what does that bank do? It sells your debt to another bank, usually acting as a collection agency. So the bank in which you were indebted to no longer has you to worry about. You are now the problem of another bank, the collection agency. Well, that's what the blood of Jesus Christ is for us, folks, a channel through which we can sell debts that we can't afford to keep. Somebody accrues a debt against me, they're not going to pay me back. I need them to pay me back. They're not going to pay me back. And I can't live with the debt that they've created. So I sell the debt to my collection agency, God himself, through the cross. And I immediately get paid back. And it doesn't even make any difference what the original debtor does or doesn't do. This is a transaction that's made outside time, folks. As you say, I forgive, Jesus is saying paid in full. It's about payment. And the good news about this is, folks, you don't have to even talk to the people that you're forgiving. You never have to contact them. You don't have to share this with anybody except God the Father. Now, folks, I have heard well-meaning counselors, therapists, well-intentioned pastors talk about seeking these people out and telling them to their face that you forgive them. And if you can't tell them to their face, I've heard people say that you get a chair and you visualize that person in the chair and you're telling them that you forgive them. Folks, that doesn't do anything about the debt. If their sin against you has not been transferred to the cross, the debt remains unpaid, and you are now sacrificing your own blood by telling these people, I forgive you. That's why it seems so therapeutic. You can feel the death inside of you. You can feel your inner death when you tell someone who's transgressed against you, I forgive you. Which to you means, I completely overlook what you did. I ignore what you did. I choose to pretend it didn't happen. I'm bigger than that. I forgive you. It's a very powerful gesture. But in time, you're going to discover the debt is still there. It remains unpaid. Now, some people have enough insight to know this, which is why they'll tell you, I can't do that. I cannot forgive that person. I could never do that. And because Satan has covered up what forgiveness really is, he's got pastors, counselors, psychologists, all promoting this idea of just seeking out the person who wronged you and then just telling them to their face, I forgive you. Folks, that sounds mature and it sounds therapeutic. It will do nothing. It will falsely promote your own self-worth because you've managed to slay yourself and sacrifice yourself by paying the debt yourself, which you're not meant to do, folks. And a lot of people know this in advance. They can sense that what they're doing is actually accruing more debt. They're actually making the hole in their backyard worse. So they'll come out and they'll tell the counselor, they'll tell the pastor, there's no way I can do that. I just can't do it. And then what the counselor will suggest is write everything down on a piece of paper. Take the debt that was accrued against you. Take the hurt. Take the transgression. Pour out your guts onto a piece of paper. Write as much as you need to and whatever you need to say. And when you're finished writing everything out, burn what you've written. And according to the therapist or the pastor in some cases, this is the best way to transfer the pain from one place to another So that the pain itself can be dealt with and destroyed. So that now you can go to the person and say, I forgive you. And folks, nothing's changed. You're still the one who is sacrificing of yourself to pay for their debt. You put it on a piece of paper and burned it. Do you really think that piece of paper bore the full weight of what you suffered? Do you think the fire that burnt that piece of paper paid for the injustice that was committed against you? Without the blood of Jesus Christ, nothing has changed. But I do find it interesting that even without the blood of Jesus Christ, these counselors, these therapists seem to be aware of the need to transfer the debt from one place to another. Unfortunately, they're just ignorant of where it needs to be transferred to. It needs to go to the cross. Now, sometimes the person who committed the transgression against you is either dead or missing. So in those cases, the counselor or the well-intentioned pastor will suggest putting an empty chair in the room, visualizing that person sitting there, listening to you tell them that you forgive them. And this is supposed to be therapy. But folks, that will not work for many obvious reasons, least of which the entire thing is taking place in your mind. It's not real. And you know it's not real. No matter how good you are at visualizing and pretending and fantasizing, you know it's not real. What is real is the transgression that's been committed against you. What is real is the hurt. What is real is the pain. But fortunately, you don't have to pretend and visualize God. He's really there. And whenever you speak to him, he's really listening. You don't have to visualize him listening. He is listening. And God provides real answers, real healing, real medicine, real comfort, real solutions. There isn't a single verse in the Bible that says the answer to any problem is visualizing anything. Here's the problem with visualizing the person who offended you being in the room with you so you can forgive them. You can visualize that person talking back. You can visualize that person defending themselves, arguing with you, telling you that you're the one who's at fault. And then you visualize this person committing the same transgression against you over and over and over again. And your therapeutic session of visualization becomes a nightmare. And besides, folks... Telling somebody to their face that you overlook their transgression, that doesn't do anything about the debt. I don't care if you're visualizing it or even if it happens in real life. Even if they accepted your forgiveness, that will not fill in the hole that they created. You got a hole in your backyard and you tell the person who took out the hole, I forgive you for doing that. You do? Thank you so much. I accept your forgiveness. You come home, there's still a hole in your backyard. That doesn't pay off the debt that they owe. Yeah, but Josh, I forgave them. Not without the blood of Jesus Christ, you didn't. You may think you've forgiven them, but what you're doing is ignoring the debt. You are overlooking the debt. It doesn't deal with it. It's still there. Now, once the debt has been paid, if you've transferred the debts and the sins and transgressions that somebody has made against you over to the cross, and if the blood of Jesus Christ has paid you back, If you want to seek these people out and tell them that they've been forgiven, that's a whole different issue. But that's an issue that is relevant towards reconciliation. It's got nothing to do with getting the debt paid off. To get the debt paid off, to get healing, you don't have to talk to these people. You don't have to tell anybody else what you've done. It's between you and God alone. Why is it between you and him alone? Because he's the one who transfers the balance of the debt in your heart that was put there by somebody else. The father is the one who takes that debt, transfers it to the cross, and then fills in the hole in your heart with the blood of Jesus Christ. So what activates this healing? What activates this transaction? You don't do this by flippantly saying, well, God forgave me, so I forgive them. That does not pay off the debt. That is flippantly ignoring it. You certainly didn't get saved that way, did you? You didn't just say, oh, well, Jesus died to pay for my sins on the cross. Isn't that nice? I'm saved now. No, there was a specific moment when you realized that you just got saved, that your sin debt was transferred to the cross before Jesus could say paid in full. Sometimes after folks get saved, time goes by, they backslide, they forget that they're saved, they don't understand the scriptures, they wonder if they're really saved. But what that usually does is drive them back into the scriptures, back into prayer to make sure they're saved. Notice they're going back to the one that saved them. Now does that mean that they temporarily lost their salvation? No. It means they temporarily lost their peace with God or their fellowship with God because of either disobedience Or simply falling prey to Satan's deception because they're not abiding in God's word. There is a specific moment in our time that we got saved, folks. It's an event. But I understand sometimes knowing that is progressive. It takes time to fully understand it. But whether you understand it when it happened or sometimes years later, you know you know that you had a moment inside your life when you realized that you got saved and that's when you were set free. Well, the same is true with forgiving others. There is a moment in time when you purposefully choose to transfer a particular debt that is owed to you and it really is owed to you, folks. And there is a moment inside time when you purposefully choose to transfer that debt to the cross. So how does that prayer go? Everybody talks about the sinner's prayer. What about the forgiver's prayer? Well, here's just a rough example, folks. You don't have to follow this word for word. It's just an example. You get somewhere alone and private and you say, Father, I don't feel like doing this. I just don't. But because I have faith in you, because I love you, because I know only you can make me whole, only you can fix this and fill me up, I choose by faith with my mind. My heart's not in this, God, i got to be honest with you, but I'm choosing with my mind to go here, to take this debt that is owed to me by John Smith and place it in your lap. So that after I'm through with this conversation with you, Lord, they will no longer owe me. They will now owe you. But I'm not doing this for nothing. I'm doing this because I know only you can recompensate me for what they did. And Father, this is what they did. And this is where you spend all the time you need, folks. Covering the transgressions that were committed against you. The pain, the hurts. Spend as much time as you need. Let it all out. Don't hold anything back. I don't care what the sin is. I don't care who the transgressor is. God knows what's in your heart anyway. So let it all out. Say everything you want to say. And this is not some visualization tool. This is not therapy. You're speaking to God. He's really listening. What you're saying matters to him. So spend as much time as you need expressing your hurt. And then say, Father, you understand every bit of this. You know exactly what is owed to me. You know exactly what was taken. You know the injustice that's involved. You know what was lost. You know why it was lost. I have a hole inside of me because of what they did. And that hole is so deep, there's shrapnel throughout my entire soul. The debt that's been accrued against me is so big, they won't repay it. They can't repay it even if they wanted to. And I can't live with it. And nobody else can pay it. Therefore, Father, I transfer the debt of all their transgressions against me over to you to lay upon the cross. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, I now forgive John Smith for every bit of this. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me for holding on to this debt longer than I should have. Please forgive me and replace all of my anger, replace all of my hurt and all of my grief with your supernatural love, your peace, your healing, the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, biblical forgiveness Is all about filling up a hole that's been ripped open deep in our soul. It's about getting rid of a debt that's been made within our mental and emotional bank account. God heals and satisfies us from other people's sins the very same way he heals and satisfies himself from our sins made against him. It's all through the blood of Jesus Christ and any attempt at forgiveness or dealing with inner hurts and pains without the blood of Jesus Christ results in making the pain worse. Would you put a Band-Aid over a bullet wound and just keep walking? It's not a good idea, folks. First, you need someone to extract the bullet, cleanse the wound, stop the bleeding, stitch it up, and then whatever ointment and dressing is necessary. Only God knows what you need to heal. With all due respect to trained therapists and counselors and well-intentioned pastors, None of those people know you the way God does. None of those people understand your hurt the way God does. Therefore, only God knows what you need, and only through the blood of Jesus Christ can it be supplied. Any attempt at healing without God, without the blood of Jesus Christ, is not going to work. And plus, you've got Satan picking at the wound whenever he can, folks. We do everything we can to patch up a wound and then Satan comes along with tweezers and starts picking at it when we're not looking. Through a TV show, through a scenario in a movie, through a conversation you overhear, through spontaneous memories that just pop up out of nowhere, or going through similar situations with somebody else. Dreams. You might have everything locked down, you're healed, you're moved on, and then you have a dream that replays what happened. And what Satan is doing is picking at the infection. See, you're trying to fix it with all of these secular notions of forgiveness. Meanwhile, Satan keeps the wound infected. But biblical forgiveness completely removes the infection, closes the wound, and heals it. Now, does that mean that you will no longer care about what happened? No, your mind has not been brainwashed of the history, nor has your spirit been released of its convictions. Your convictions against the transgressions committed against you will continue to be there. But your heart will be healed and will continue to be healed as God continues to nurture, caress, and heal the wound. And folks, you don't have to worry about not feeling the healing begin and wondering, well, is it really taking place? I guess I just have to believe and hope and faith that God's going to begin to heal me of my hurt. You don't have to worry about that. You will feel the healing process begin when you hold this private conversation with the Father and transfer that debt to the cross and forgive the person of their sin against you through the blood of Jesus Christ. You will feel the healing begin at that moment. Now, depending on the severity of the wound, complete healing might take a while, but you don't have to worry about whether or not the healing has gotten started. You will begin to feel the healing process at the very moment that their transgressions against you have been transferred to the cross. Now, one of the things that Satan will do after you've been healed is he will try to reopen the old wound and make you feel like it was never healed to begin with. And sometimes this happens years later. That's his style. Allow you to get healed, give you enough time to forget all about it, and then blindside you with it years later. But don't worry, folks. When the hurt comes back, that's not the old hurt not going away. That's new hurt coming back because an old wound has been reopened. And all you got to do is take it right back to the Father. Say, Father, look what Satan did. He brought this up all over again. So here you go. And the quicker you give it back to him, the quicker you'll get over it. Let me give you a few rough examples so you can put some meat to the bones of this doctrine. A couple years ago a close friend of mine with two kids came home for Christmas to discover that thieves had broken into their home and ransacked the place. They took all the gifts under the tree, as well as old gifts from previous Christmases. Kids' video games, toys, all gone. Not only was she transgressed against, her kids were transgressed against, so the protective nature of being a mother was activated. Once she got over the initial shock of what took place, She immediately told her kids, we need to get somewhere, we need to get on our knees, and we need to pray for the people who did this and forgive them. And when I first read that, I knew in my spirit she was right, but everything else in me thought, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, you can't get any lower than somebody who breaks into your home on Christmas Eve, robs your presents. I mean, they made a TV show and a movie about a guy like that, called him the Grinch. You've got to be kidding me. But see, folks, that's before the Lord taught me that forgiveness is not condoning what happened. It doesn't mean you don't want your stuff back. It doesn't mean that what happened is okay. But what it does mean is that the transgression that was committed against her and her kids needed to be transferred to the cross so that the blood of Jesus Christ could flow down and replace in those two kids' hearts and their mother's heart what was taken from them. And folks, it was. It was like something straight out of a Frank Copra film. A bunch of people got together and collected enough money to not only replace everything that was taken, there was money left over. A lot of money left over. Now folks, that doesn't happen for everybody when bad news comes. Why did it happen to her? Well, she just happened to know the right people. Probably a member of this big mega church, 8,000 people, and that's just the way they are. No, that's not the case. She's a very humble person with humble means. She's not out there in front of everybody. And the news of her and her kids getting somewhere alone to pray for these people and forgive them, nobody knew about that until later. She decided to share that news after they got everything back because she wanted to share with people just how faithful God is. And what an awesome lesson for everybody that knew about this, especially her kids. What kind of lessons did they get about supernatural love? Not only their mother's love, but God's love coming right back. Now, I gave you a short version of the story. There's a whole lot more details that took place. This didn't happen in two hours. But the point of the story is, notice what forgiveness was and what it wasn't. Notice she didn't condone or excuse the act of her house being broken into and stolen from. She didn't put a fake smile on her face and say, it's okay, I forgive them, it's okay. No, she didn't do that. She was devastated. She was hurt. She recognized the crime that was committed against her. Notice also she didn't have to put the thieves down in a chair and visualize her forgiving them. And she certainly didn't have to be reconciled with these people. She doesn't even know who did it. Forgiveness is not about ignoring the transgression. It's not about getting over it. It's not about condoning it, it's not about accepting it, and it's not about reconciliation. Biblical forgiveness is about getting back what was taken through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, even though the example that I just gave you is a financial one, the same rules apply regardless of whatever it is that's being forgiven. What about adultery? Well, forgiveness is not about ignoring adultery, that needs to be dealt with, Forgiveness is not about getting over adultery. You can't get over it until you've been healed. Forgiveness is not about condoning adultery. No place in the Bible condones adultery. And that's usually what adulterers try to do when they get found out. If you were a better wife or husband, then I wouldn't be looking for somebody else. It's your fault. And what they're trying to get you to do is condone their actions. That's not forgiveness, folks. (laughs) No place in the Bible does God condone adultery. Forgiveness is not about accepting adultery. No place in the Bible are you supposed to just take it. And forgiveness certainly isn't about reconciliation, unless the person who committed adultery follows the conditions necessary for reconciliation, in which Jesus himself defined earlier. So in all those cases, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is about God healing you, the one who was transgressed against. And it's healed the same way everything else is healed. You take that adultery. You express every last ounce of hurt and injustice and betrayal. And you give it to the Father to put on the cross so the blood of Jesus Christ can heal you of those transgressions. God knows what it feels like to be the victim of adultery. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, he promises to protect Israel, to be their God, to be their leader, to be their master. He promises and provides blessing. He gives them good weather. He gives them rain in due season. He gives them flourishing crops. It's almost like a fairy tale. He gives them their heart's desires. He gives them everything they want. And over and over again, they turn to false gods, idols, and pagan worship. And every time they do that, God compared that to adultery. He called it that. What about verbal abuse? Say you know somebody who is verbally abusive, and sometimes that can hurt worse than physical abuse. Well, forgiveness is not about ignoring it. Forgiveness is not about getting over the verbal abuse. Forgiveness is not about condoning it, and it's not about accepting it. And if it got so bad that you had to remove them from your fellowship, forgiveness is not about being reconciled with them either, unless they follow the conditions necessary for reconciliation that Jesus outlined earlier. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness means taking that verbal abuse, telling God everything that happened, expressing your hurts, expressing your anger, and then saying, Lord, I take every bit of that and I put it in your hands to lay upon the cross. So all the damage that's been done to me from that verbal abuse will be healed. What about sexual abuse? Forgiveness is not about ignoring the abuse, it's not about getting over it, it's not about condoning it, it's not about accepting it, and you don't have to be reconciled with the one who abused you. So what is forgiveness then? Forgiveness is being healed of the pain and the injustice and the victimhood that has been built up inside of you because of the abuse. Forgiveness is taking the abuse, giving it to God, telling him exactly what happened expressing the pain, expressing the hurt, expressing the humiliation, giving it to him so he can put it on the cross with all of our sins and that the blood of Jesus Christ will pay for those transgressions and we can begin to heal. When we don't place the transgression under the cross so the blood of Jesus Christ can pay us back, we hold on to the debt ourselves and it changes who we are in a way that we don't want to be changed. Sometimes we'll recognize the change within us. We'll see it. We'll notice that it's there, but we don't know why it's there. And we'll ask ourselves, when when did I become this way? When did I start thinking like this? Why am I like this? I guarantee you 99.9% of the time it's got something to do with a hurt or a transgression that has been committed against us that we have not given over to God to put on the cross. Folks, Basically, the difference between biblical forgiveness and worldly forgiveness is this. Biblical forgiveness takes a hurt, puts it on the cross, and pays for it. Worldly forgiveness is a cover-up. It buries the hurt. It ignores the hurt. And that's why it doesn't work. And here is one final example that I'm going to give you. I know we're running over this time. (laughs) I didn't intend for this one to go this long. But... I wanted to spend some special time putting the railroad cars back on the railroad since Satan has spent all this time derailing the cars when it came to what forgiveness really means. Because Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, assumes we all know what forgiveness means. But we don't. So that's why I spent so much time on this. But let me give you this one last example because to me, this is when God finally drove the point home to me. This is what forgiveness really is. This final example will prove to you that forgiveness is all about healing and nothing else. It's got nothing to do with who's right or who's wrong. It's got nothing to do with reconciliation. It's got nothing to do with condoning trespasses, accepting trespasses, ignoring trespasses, or accepting reasonable explanations. It's got nothing to do with excuses. It doesn't even have anything to do with the other person. Forgiving someone of a trespass does not change or even affect their relationship to the debt that's been created. Forgiveness only deals with the debt. And here's the proof. Sometimes the transgressions that we don't forgive but need to forgive are transgressions that we believe have been committed against us by God disappointments in our childhood, disappointments in the parents we wound up with, disappointments over whether or not we lost a child in childbirth. All of us who love God and worship God and pray to God, we put everything in his hands. And even though God has warned us that we're in the midst of a supernatural war, even though he's warned us that we would endure suffering because of that war, we still hope for the best, especially since we know we've put everything in God's hands. So that when things happen that we don't like, we can't help but be disappointed. And when the disappointment is painfully traumatic. Folks, it's only human to feel betrayed. And until those feelings of betrayal are dealt with and put on the cross, they will secretly influence and affect your relationship with God in a way that you don't want it to. Now, Satan would have us believe you don't forgive God because God never does anything wrong. Folks, the one you're forgiving does not have to be in error to be forgiven. That's a trap that Satan put me under for six years. My nanny, my grandmother, was the most precious person in my life. And we had hoped that whenever her passing would come, that it would be short and sweet and painless. Which is what everybody wants. We all hope to live a rich, full life and then quietly die in our sleep with a smile on our face. That's how we all want to go. That's how we want to see our loved ones go. Doesn't always work out that way. Nanny had developed a case of dementia, which was a side effect of Parkinson's disease, and we didn't find out until later that she had also developed some Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease fills your life with sadness, with confusion, and with fear. That's not at all who my nanny was. Looking back on the experience now, she didn't suffer that long in comparison to so many people out there who spend 10 years with Alzheimer's disease. She only had it for about a year. The worst of it lasted four months. But we didn't see it coming. And when we started seeing evidence of it, all of us dealt with it in different ways, and the way I dealt with it was with denial. I kept trying to figure out a way to fix it. I kept thinking, well, if we could just get the right doctor and get the right procedure and figure out what's going on, get the right diet and the right medication, we can fix this. And while I was living in denial on one side, I was quietly in prayer begging God, don't let this happen. Don't let it go there. This is my nanny. Don't let it go there. And it did. And it was painful to watch. But then the day she died, I knew that was all over. I knew where she was. I knew she had her confidence back. She had her youthful beauty back. She had her joy back. And there was absolutely no fear or sadness where she was. I was so happy for her that the chaplain who was there to counsel us over our grief was surprised to see how excited and how happy I was. Because I told him, I said, no, no, no. You don't know what I've seen the last four months. I know that what I've seen for the last four months is over. I know where she is. I'm happy for her. But what I didn't realize was I had not dealt with the disappointment that I had in God for allowing my nanny to go through what she went through before she died. I quoted to myself Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I just moved on like it didn't happen. I quoted Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. And your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I quoted to myself Romans 8.28. All things work together and are fitting into a plan for good to all those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So I just covered up the hurt and pretended it wasn't there. Didn't matter anyway. She was fine now. She's happy, beautiful. None of my past doubts mattered anymore. None of my unanswered prayers mattered anymore. She was confident again. And yet, I had a hole and my shield of faith that went unrepaired. It just sat there, unattended to, unhealed, festering throughout time. And of course, as they say, time heals all wounds, right? The more time that went by, the more time Nanny was in heaven, the more time she was happy, the more time she's beautiful, the more time I have to realize that that one year of suffering she went through is nothing compared to the six years of joy and beauty and happiness that she's had. So you'd think I'd get over it, right? During the next six years, I spent time praying, starting a website, doing a Bible study, buying resource materials, study materials. I eat it up, folks. I love it. I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I want to. I love it. I love God. I love the Bible. I love praying every morning. I love looking forward to the rapture. I can't wait to get out of here. And until that day comes, I love seeing what God's up to. I love keeping up with Bible prophecy. But buried miles deep beneath all this faith, beneath all this joy, is an unresolved hurt that had not been dealt with, that had not been put on the cross so the blood of Jesus Christ could heal me. And how do you think it affected my trust? I'll tell you how. One day my mom was on a long road trip. And she carried her cell phone with her, so I gave her a call every now and then to see how she was doing. And there was one particular time where the phone kept ringing. And while it was ringing longer than usual, I started worrying just a little bit. Just a little bit. Nothing big. Just, you know, wondering what's going on. And then it went into voicemail, and she didn't call me back. So now I'm starting to get a little worried. So I just said a short, sweet little prayer. I mean, there's a million reasons why something like this would happen. So I wasn't too stressed out about it. Just worried enough to say a short, sweet little prayer, Lord, please let her be okay and answer the phone. But then it was as though saying that prayer triggered instant doubt. And my mind painted a picture of her hanging upside down pinned in the car with gasoline pouring underneath her as her phone rang and she tried to reach out to get it but couldn't and no one was there. God won't do anything about it. He's just going to sit there and let my mama burn to death in the car upside down while I'm praying for her safety because all things good, bad, and ugly somehow fit together in a divine plan that no one can understand. And then suddenly she called me back thought, my gosh, I went from being completely calm to being in a full-blown panic. She was hanging upside down, burning to death in my head. And I thought, good grief, Lord, where did that come from? Why did I do that? I mean, it would have been different if it had taken maybe several hours for her to call me back. But this was only a minute or two. What triggered that? What made that happen? I don't know. I moved on. Then it was some time later, it happened again. One evening, my cat Pete went missing for a few hours. He wasn't gone that long, but it started to get dark, and we have coyotes in our neighborhood. So I try to get him in before it's dark. Well, it started to get dark. He wasn't in yet, and I started to panic. Not severely, just enough to get a prayer going. I said, Lord, please bring Pete back home before it gets too late. I worry about those coyotes. Just a short, sweet little prayer. Nothing serious. But then suddenly, because I said that prayer, I immediately began to doubt that God would answer that prayer. I knew God wasn't listening. He has infinite plans that surpass all understanding, and you never know when something bad is going to happen, and we have no protection against sadness because all things good, bad, and ugly somehow fit together in a divine plan that no one can understand, and I began to get very angry and frustrated and sad, and then all of a sudden there came Pete to the door. And I remember thinking, Lord, it happened again. If he had been gone for several days, maybe being upset, but he was only missing for a little while. What triggered this panic attack? What's this all about? And then all of a sudden, I remembered that was just like the time with my mom on the phone when she was on a trip. Everything's fine. I'm happy, not really worried about anything. But I go from being calm to being in a panic in just a few seconds. What triggered the panic? And then I realized it was the prayer. It was the prayer that triggered the panic. Why? Prayer is supposed to bring comfort. So I wrote a note down because I wanted to spend some time alone with God in prayer talking about this and getting this settled. Because I meet the Lord every morning in prayer, get a Bible out and read some passages of scripture and then quietly pray and go over a list. And that's how I begin each day. So I wrote a little note to myself, you need to talk to God about this problem. And uh the next morning I did. I brought it up to him. I said, Lord, what's that all about? What's going on? What's happened? What's causing me to behave this way? And folks, I didn't have to ask God more than once. And it was as clear as a bell. Without it being audible, it wasn't an audio sound, but it was straight in my heart. That still small voice, clear as a bell, said, you need to forgive me for how I chose in my wisdom to handle your nanny's death. And I was taken aback by that because it had been over six years. And while I prayed, I said, Lord, I don't need to forgive you for that. So I brushed it off as my imagination. I thought I just threw that in there. I'm grasping at straws trying to figure out what the problem is. And it happened again. It was like, no, 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 don't brush this off. This is the reason. You asked me for the reason, I'm giving it to you. You need to forgive me for how I handled your nanny's death. And I remember trying to argue with God about this, blaming it on my imagination. I thought, God, that can't possibly be it. That's got to be me making this up. That's not you. I don't need to forgive you of anything, much less how you handled my nanny's death. What's that got to do with anything? That was six years ago. I'm over that. I've been over that. And God shot right back at me before I could even finish. Think about it, Josh. Being concerned over a loved one is not what sets you into a panic. And praying to me isn't what sets you into a panic. You do that every morning. It isn't until you bring to me the concern you have over a loved one that you're worried about that you go into this panic. Josh, you and I both know why that is. I'm here to take care of you and all your loved ones. I want you to trust me with your mom, your loved ones, your pets, your friends. Josh, you can trust me. I am trustworthy, and I want you to trust me, but you can't. It terrifies you to trust me. You need to forgive me for how I chose in my wisdom to handle your nanny's death. Well, I wasn't expecting that, folks, and I tried to brush it off. I said, Lord, you are God. Your son died on the cross to pay for all my sins. It's not for me to forgive you. It's you who've forgiven me. You're God. You don't make mistakes and you don't do anything wrong. Josh, I know that you know that with your mind and you accept that is truth in faith. But there's a hole in your heart that says otherwise. You need to forgive me. Lord, if that's you, everything's okay. It's been over six years. I know where Nanny is. I've gotten over it. And besides, you're a perfect God. I can't question what you've done. And I'm happy with where Nanny is. We're all going to be with her soon. Josh, I know you know all that. You still need to forgive me for how I handled your Nanny's death. God, that was years ago. I've gotten over it. I've moved on. There's nothing to forgive. I know it was years ago. I know you think you've gotten over it. And I know you think you've moved on. But you haven't. You need to forgive me for how I chose to handle your nanny's death. God, I don't understand why everything had to go down the way it did, but that's on me, not you. You told me in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 that your thoughts were higher than mine, your ways were higher than mine, which is why Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So Lord, someway, somehow, what took place had a purpose that only you and my nanny know about. And I won't know about it until I'm with you guys up in heaven. So I'm fine with that. God, I know you loved my nanny and I know you don't make mistakes. Well, God was very persistent with me, folks. He kept at it. He said, Josh, I know all about your mature faith in me. And I'm proud of your ability to trust me and lean not on your own understanding. That's great. That doesn't change the fact that you were devastated by how I chose in my wisdom to handle your nanny's death. That's why you don't trust me. You need to forgive me. But God, you don't make mistakes. I'm not admitting to any. I'm telling you, you need to forgive me for how I handled your nanny's death. And folks, that's what—that's <laughs> basically the way it went down. I was stunned. Because I kept looking out the window thinking, this can't be the source of my problem. Yeah, that was hurtful. That happened six years ago, though. I haven't been walking around staring at the ground hurting over this. I haven't been blaming God. Or have I? I did ask God to tell me what it was that was causing me to go into a full-blown panic whenever I prayed to him about somebody I loved. Was this it? Quite possibly. But I didn't seem to feel any pain inside. I was trying to find within myself, is there any pain there? Is there any hurt there? It didn't seem that there was any hurt there. I couldn't feel any pain. And him bringing this up to me didn't bother me. So I just shrugged my shoulders and thought, you know, what could it hurt? Sure, I can forgive him. Why not? I mean, if that's what he wants, it's kind of a strange request from God. We spend so much time asking him to forgive us. So I thought, you know, just in case this isn't my imagination, this is really taking place, I thought, what could it hurt? So I verbally out loud said these words, Lord Father, I forgive you for how you handled my nanny's death. Folks, I did not get through that sentence without falling on the floor and breaking down like a little baby and crying louder than I've ever cried before. And then what made it funny was that in the midst of my crying, I was laughing at the same time. I was laughing because I could feel the healing begin that moment. Six and a half years of unresolved hurt, unresolved disappointment, all gone, all healed with one word, the word forgive. And then I was amazed. I was amazed at this. I was amazed at this whole scenario. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it but to say it was as though Jesus came up behind me, crawled down on the floor with me, wrapped his left arm around my stomach, and wrapped his right arm around my neck, and cried with me. He never once said he was sorry for how things went down because he still got, he didn't do anything wrong. But he knew, he knew how much. I was disappointed in how that whole thing turned out. And that's when I began to realize for the first time in my whole life, forgiveness is not about the other person. It's not even about the transgression. Forgiveness is about healing from the hurt that a transgression caused. And that's all it's about. And then later, I discovered after reading Matthew and getting into the original Greek and Hebrew. Forgiveness is about transferring the debt onto the cross so that the blood of Jesus Christ can pour back into my heart and give me the satisfaction, give me the healing, give me whatever it is I need. And you know something, folks? It really is amazing. Ever since that day that I chose to verbally out loud forgive God for how he handled my nanny's death, ever since that day, I can tell the difference. No question about it. I am completely healed. It only took that one prayer. I have not been brainwashed. My memory and understanding of how Nanny passed away has not changed. But the damage, the emotional trauma of that event has been healed. Am I okay with what happened? Absolutely not. How could I be? Do I condone what happened? How could I? How could I possibly condone something that I don't understand? But all of the hurt is gone. The disappointment is gone. The sense of betrayal is gone. My confidence in God, my trust in him to take care of my loved ones is restored. Nanny did not slip through God's fingers. That entire scenario had a purpose that both he and Nanny know about, and both of them are in agreement. She is presently enjoying the reward for whatever that suffering was for. And I used to tell myself that all the time, but I never believed it until after I forgave God for how he handled my nanny's death. We've been twisted and brainwashed into believing forgiveness is about how we feel. About overlooking transgressions, accepting transgressions, ignoring them, condoning them, and forcing reconciliation with people we have no business being reconciled with. Forgiveness isn't any of those things, folks. Forgiveness is transferring. you got to use that word transfer. It's about transferring a debt from where it is into the Father's hands so that he can put it on the cross and allow the blood of Jesus Christ to recompensate you for your loss. That's what forgiveness is. And that's all it is. Now, can you immediately forgive when the wound is fresh and it's still bleeding and there's no scar tissue yet, parts of the flesh are still ripping from the wound, muscles are reacting to the tear? You do need to hurt for a little while. That's normal. God understands that. But eventually, you need to take that hurt to him in prayer and let him have it. The longer you keep it, the more damage is done. But since Jesus' blood is what pays for all these transgressions, that's how. Jesus could respond to Peter when Peter asked him, Lord, how often may my brother sin against me that I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus answered and said to him, I say to you, not seven times, but seventy times seven times. We're going to stop it right there, folks. Thanks for bearing with me. Until next time, we're out of here. Take care.